pathways are the ways that they gamify our lives. Nudges are the ways that um, you build into softwares, reminders that you're about to get punished or rewarded. This is the kind of thing that's already in gaming systems and guess who paid for it? DARPA and the military. That's who paid for Pokemon Go. Talk about a, a, a test balloon. Pokemon Go was funded by the military and DARPA. Ready to live at the higher vibrations where peace, love, joy, and good health are the daily standard? That's what this show is all about. Welcome to Vibe. And here's your host, Robin Openshaw. Hey everyone, it's Robin Openshaw. Welcome back to the Vibe Show. This is part three of three. Um, reviewing the work of Allison McDowell, who I believe has done absolutely heroic and difficult work in connecting the dots on who the players are in, uh, you know, we, we call, call them the globalists. We might call them the cabal. Um, who are these people? They're really just people behind corporations and they have a lot of different parts to their agenda. And I've never seen anybody parse it out in so much detail and with so much specificity. So we ended part two with talking about how, in my opinion, if you take a look at all of these science fiction novels that actually then showed up in real world communism as Marxism became uh, communism all over the world, more than 50 countries have gone into communism, not any of them. Not a single one has solved environmental problems or has even made environmental problems better. They've only made it worse. Not one of them has eliminated poverty. Um, If there's a successful one, I think, uh, let's see, well, Russia and and, uh, Cuba, China has a middle middle class that's growing at least, but these, these people aren't free. So, you know, the communism was never as it's sold to us, but most Americans have no idea that right now what we're doing is falling into communism. In fact, I bet if you held a gun to their heads, they couldn't even, uh, they couldn't even define socialism and communism because there's a difference. And, you know, I just, I have to shake my head. when I keep seeing Utah saying, if we're not careful, careful, we're going to end up in socialism. We're, we're past socialism. We're in full blown socialism with the government dictating every single thing about our lives right now, even in Utah. And uh, communism is next where we don't own anything. And Klaus Schwab has sent that shot across the bow saying that by 2030, they, they intend for, for us to own nothing. So the warning is there. Or what are we going to do about it? Are we going to stand up to it? And so I said, hey, in all these science fiction novels and in many countries of the world, history is rewritten. You're really not allowed to discuss how things were in the old days. And... Even your thoughts are regulated. You could be turned into the police um, for having a disloyal thought or saying something that even comes across to somebody as disloyal. The children are in the, in the book, 1984, the children are trained as spies and they're praised for seeing anything irregular in people's behavior and chasing them down, turning them in. And then of course there's the citizen self-appointed place and we see them, you know, somebody in Midway, Utah, Last week, a citizen vigilante who is, you know, a a self-appointed police state uh, enforcer 
came up and rammed him in a Smith's grocery store with his cart, just rammed him because he wasn't wearing a mask. And that just made him mad. And he's, he's unintentionally fallen so into the propaganda and brainwashing that he's now an enforcer. So I bet, I bet these people's people couldn't tell you one single thing about the history of communism and how um, we get people engaged in group think and believing in huge lies. The bigger the lie, the easier it is to get people to believe. Actually, I think it's, I want to say it's either the Hitler or Goebbels or somebody in the administration um, actually said that. So you just have to hear it often enough and from enough people. And we certainly have all those pieces in place, right? With the scandemic. So let's pick up where we left off. Not only do we need to guard our thoughts and record our history so we don't forget in 10 years, if, if we keep going like we're going, we will, we'll be losing our memories of what life was like and what freedom is. So write it down. That's what in every single one of these science fiction dystopia novels, they wrote their stories because they didn't have any freedom of speech and they wanted to have a, they wanted to have a voice and they wanted to tell the future something. And so let's talk about education. Uh, Alison McDowell believes that education as we know it is going away. That won't surprise you all that much when you've seen that in many states, the kids are now just stuck with at home schooling because we're terrified of a virus that four tenths of 1% get symptoms worse than a cold. Um, that's obviously by design, but we will go to more credentials than degrees and there will be micro certifications and all these things will be designed as modules for lifelong learning so that they can keep training us in the things that they need. Because as the, as the, all these new industries come up and there's so much profit to be had by having this virtual twin in the cloud, um, they need more virtual identities. And we don't need this long period of time where you, quote, go to school. We don't certainly don't need to learn history anymore, do we, if we're just going to accept the that the, the population is just a workforce. We're just cattle. We're nothing really different than cattle. And so we're just needed for these 3,000 super wealthy people and organizations to um, completely control the world and become insanely wealthy. So if education as we know it is going away, I would explain why. Um, and she, she thinks, too, that education will be run on the blockchain. We're already seeing this a little bit. Um, explains why my friend Carmen today told me that she went to her 16-year-old son's school. And she said, from the minute I walked in, it felt very much familiar to me. And then I thought about it. I realized it because it feels like a prison. Well, that's by design. And McDowell talks about Michael Bloomberg and, and she says, Hey, you know, Bill Gates is standing out there and he's covering for a lot of people, but there's a lot of people standing behind him who, whose names you may have never heard, but are potentially even worse than Gates. She says that Michael Bloomberg might be worse than Gates because while Gates's role is to get everybody to take the vaccine and the vaccine may be an injectable that is part of our tracking, okay? Because an under-the-skin tracking, you can never get rid of it, right? You can't get that out of your body. Uh, it may change your DNA. It may make you more compliant. We don't know what all those chemicals are in there to do. We don't know how long they were working on the COVID vaccine before they released the uh, what some people call the Chinese Communist Party <laughs> um, vaccine or uh, virus. So... 
So while that's Gates's role to push the vaccine part of the agenda and get people barcoded and tracked, um, and possibly these vaccines are pathogenically priming people for the next virus that that they release on us because now everything's all set up for it. But Bloomberg's role is to run the global police state. So it's basically an open air prison run by social workers and healthcare professionals. So that's another couple of industries that we can expect to be part of the police state. Um, talk to somebody in healthcare right now. See if you can find someone who doesn't hate their job right now. I have medical doctors telling me we are so swamped. We are exhausted. We can't do a good job. We are slammed. And these are not people dealing with COVID. They say, and they'll tell you, say it has nothing to do with COVID whatsoever. I don't even treat COVID patients. One friend of mine is an OBGYN who works in a hospital and she's my age, a couple years older. And she says, we just, we just don't get to spend our time doing medicine. And teachers are telling us the exact same thing. Ask teachers if they're enjoying their work right now. Some of them are a little bit giddy about the idea that they can work from home, but that's because they don't realize that they're in an open air prison. They don't realize that they're not, they're not going back to a classroom. They don't get to ever have the life that they used to where they made meaningful connections with the students that they taught. Um, that's not how um, these globalists want the education system to be. Ask, ask flight attendants how they're enjoying their work being threatened every day as this United flight attendant told me she's threatened every single day with being fired if she doesn't vigilantly enforce the mask mandate. Nobody can get away with anything who's on an airplane or in an airport. So one of the terms that you'll be hearing a lot coming up will be reskilling. People would need to be reskilled because if the, the whole medical system is changing massively, if the airline industry is changing massively, if the education system is changing massively, we have to reskill people. And it's possible that teachers become more coders than teachers, right? So when you hear the word reskilled, you know, like you're hearing the word reimagine from every single one of the first world leaders are talking about reimagining um, healthcare and reimagining government. Um, you know, these words might sound nice. You might think, oh, how nice somebody's job really changes. And so they're so nice that they're giving us new skills. Nope. Not only are you going to be charged for it and maybe your wages garnished all on the blockchain, you can't change it. You can't dispute it. But remember, your productivity serves their goals. So it's really not that they care about you so much. So we've already seen the children sent home. We've already seen... Um, the minds of the people being conditioned to accept the very difficult reality that you thought you were raising children to be able to send them to walk to school or get on a school bus and come home eight hours later. That's not what they want. Okay. And now that you've ranted and raved about it now, and now that you've fully accepted it. Okay. My friends in Park City, they were so angry. My kids are having to wear masks to school. And I thought, oh, they're going to pull their kids out. They're going to homeschool their kids. And they didn't. They just sent their kids back to school. I have one friend in Park City who got her kids mask exemptions and um, and her kids were being kind of bullied and teachers would like put them over on the side of the room because they are treating the child as if they're this disgusting, unwashed vector of disease. I don't know if she ever just decided to just go ahead and send her kids in masks like everybody else or I haven't talked to her in a while, but 
basically, um, Michael Bloomberg is over the part where we are in an open air prison and that's what we're putting our kids into. If we send them into the public schools, it's an open air prison and it's a brainwashing machine right now. Utah is in a big battle right now in the legislative session over um, these two pro transgender books that are being read to elementary school kids. Well, the, the school, the school districts are fighting about this. And it's all part of the curriculum is to slowly indoctrinate kids to accept that you get to choose your gender. You can change genders if you want. I mean, there's there's laws that if you're a therapist or a doctor, you cannot ask any questions. You cannot question a 16-year-old who wants to change genders. And insurance companies have to pay for it. So when, you know... When they sent us home, you probably really felt like you had to go home, and I get that. But really, the problem was a year ago is that we didn't have critical mass. We didn't have people awake. People were too confused. And people fell for the stupid words we were told, like, flatten the curve. And they were, especially over time, as so many people said said it to them, they became very hypnotized. And back then, we needed numbers of people to stand up to it a year ago, right? Like, we should have we should have revolted in mass, but... Too many of us lacked courage and even more of us actually accepted the story that we needed government to tell us what to do and how to live our lives. But hey, guess what? It might have been fewer than 10% in the Revolutionary War who even wanted to go up against Great Britain or to go up against Britain that saved America. So don't be hopeless. Um, fight the feeling of hopelessness and realize that that's what they want. And they're winning when you become hopeless and demoralized. And there's nobody in the freedom fight who doesn't get demoralized. And I've really tried to create a culture in the, among the, the leaders of the freedom fight, like, Hey, reach out for help when you get demoralized, because we all have days like that. And let's be each other's support. And I'll try to be the wind under your wings when you need it. Um, one of them, one of them just told me that today said, I'm really fighting tears. I'm fighting the sense of overwhelm. And I'm like, well, if there were a thousand times more of you, we wouldn't even be in this boat. And what can I do to help? So I've learned to do that. And some of them have done that for me as well. So you can bet that they are commodifying the new model of education. The globalists intend to get rich from this new model as well as university degrees become pretty worthless at least some of them, right? Like a degree in art history will be irrelevant. Um, They will rewrite history as all totalitarian governments do. Um, Alison McDowell says, you know, she has a master's degree in art history. They're not going to have any interest in preserving art and culture. Okay. You're now more than before, even it's not like any of this is really new. It's just taking it to a new level. You're now a, a commodity traded in their new marketplace and parts of your virtual twin in the cloud can be, you know, separated off and traded, you know, like, like big blocks of mortgages were and the greed and the craze of what was happening there and what a bubble it became caused the crash of 2008. Um, But what you're hearing right now, this podcast episode and everything else that you've been listening to that qualifies as free speech that, that has an alternative opinion to the media narrative, this will disappear from the internet soon enough. There's no way in heck that this 
podcast is going to be left standing on the internet a year from now. So make mental notes of what's going on right now or physical notes. Like, like I told you in 1984, Winston Smith gets a diary and he sits against the wall because that's the only place where the telescreen can't see him. And he writes in a diary. Sometimes he just rants. Sometimes he just writes in big capital letters. I hate big brother. Okay. Just to write down some memories and have something of his own and to have his own original thoughts since that's illegal because if they succeed at what they're trying to do, in 10 years, believe it or not, you'll be so conditioned that you'll have a hard time remembering what life was like in 2019 and how radically life has changed in the past year. I mean, have you ever seen more change in one year? I haven't. In my life, in my 54 years, I've never seen so much change in one year. It feels like two decades, right? But, but one thing that's clear from Allison McDowell's research is that there are going to be people betting on you. Um, like hedge funds, okay? People are going to be profiting on you reaching their goals or not reaching their goals. Uh, you could be, you could be in a big block of people and hedge funds short you to just to stay in the flow of goods and services. These industries will rise up. They'll have carrots and they'll have sticks. Remember the nudges? The nudges, um, are one of my favorites of the propaganda terms because they sound so, Benign, you know, like somebody just gently nudging you. Um, but these kinds of things intend to make our children and our grandchildren indentured serv- servants if we don't stand up to it. And, and their words sound like these people doing this to us are wonderful humanitarian capitalists. So, but these, these people behind the Great Reset, they are some very powerful and very successful people. And they've done things like shorting the pound or shorting the dollar or, you know, hedging the mortgage industry. These people have, have created huge industries. Um, and so definitely go watch the film, The Big Short. I haven't yet, but several people have said that to me. And Allison McDowell has said that in a couple of her talks. So um, definitely go watch the film, The Big Short. It was about the mortgage crash of 2008. But, you know, um, Nathan Rothschild was shorting wars and was funding both sides of the same war over uh, some, something like 100 years ago. But that's the kind of people who are behind this global reset. These are people who know how to securitize debt. These are people who are behind the central banks. Okay, The Federal Reserve, which is not federal and is not part of the United States government, is in fact a private organization, is very much behind the Great Reset. And these people are engineering how to profit on poverty and create whole new markets. So... Like I said in part one, watch for all the things they're beta testing right now. They spread out these beta tests all over the world, which will give you a sense of just how very global this is. Um, these are not conspiracy theories anymore. Every single thing that Allison McDowell talks about um, is from firsthand sources, and a lot of it has been beta tested or already exists, like smart play tables. In a pre-K program, there's a smart play table, and it's not just... It's not just one way, it's two way. They're gathering information about toddlers. Okay. And that, this is where they're testing those pathways and those nudges. So really steeped you guys in some important vocabulary. And for all I know, maybe those words will change. 
But, you know, we'll get into ways that the global elite, um, and I'll put a link in the show notes of who they are, but it's a little bit frustrating because the 2000 organizations of the impact management project is really just a bunch of logos, right? It's not like people really want to stand out there and say, you know, I'm part of this, but on the other hand, they probably have their arm twisted a little bit. I would imagine that the reason that 2000 or 3000 of the wealthiest organization of the world, um, organizations and people, and some of them are just people hiding behind shell corporations, right. Or, or just organizations that kind of give them an arm's length relationship with it all. Probably a lot of them don't understand what the ultimate agenda is because they too fall for the pretty words and the propaganda. But these people have conspired to basically make new financial markets out of poverty and out of global social issues and out of human capital in general, because my guess is that they went to these people and said, basically, you can either be in on this and help us with it and profiteer from it, or you can be a victim of it. And you will no longer be relevant. You won't even be allowed in this new capitalism where there's this public-private merger where government merges with a huge, corrupt corporate capitalism, right? Listen, capitalism is not the opposite of communism. They're just the flip sides of the same coin. And the kind of capitalism that we're experiencing is extremely corrupt. Okay. So I call what I think the world should be the free market system, right? But capitalism itself is every bit as corrupt as communism is. So, you know, they're not super interested in people like me who are 54 years old. They're, they may reskill us and keep us around if we're talented and smart and worth something in our mid career and willing to go along with things. They might not even be super interested in my husband, who's only 40, and he's physically very strong. Um, They're less interested in us, but they're super interested in the humans they can get from scratch. They're super heavily investing right now in pre-K education. And so that's why you have beta tests going going, um, out there about like smart play tables. And Hewlett Packard engaging and joining this, this whole play with giving lots of poor people Chromebooks, right? They're not doing that because they're such wonderful people. They're doing that because that's a big part of the surveillance, right? So Alison McDowell gives as an example, this um, young girl who lives in total squalor and without running water, but they give her a Chromebook. Well, why is that? Ask yourself why that is, right? So your debt, your children's education, and even poverty itself can be parsed out and can be turned into financial opportunities to be bundled like mortgages. Um, And all this really happened, if we trace it back, it happened because of debt or the usury system. If we go to biblical law or um, also to Shakespearean concepts, um, or just the seven deadly sins type of terminology. If we just literally go back a couple thousand years, it's actually unethical and illegal 
by Christian code of conduct, what you and I take for granted that some rich person can lend us money and charge us 5% or 10% or 20% interest, it's literally forbidden in the Bible. It's called usury because God knows that when that gets started, it's really the beginning of the end of any kind of freedom for his children, right? So the minute that became a thing, and I'm not sure where it started, but I know that the Rothschilds in Europe really got this started over a hundred years ago when it became a thing to create money in the central banks and then lend it at high interest rates that nobody could ever pay back in their lifetime. That was kind of the beginning of the end. Now you're at that end of what that debt or usury system started. And another thing that was invented that nobody blinked an eye at when it happened, in fact, it sounded like a fantastic thing, the way it was sold to us, is also a huge tool in our upcoming slavery, if we don't stand up to it, is blockchain technology and also 5G. So kind of like the internet, yeah, blockchain can do a lot of good, sure. And, you know, a lot of you haven't invested in Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies, for instance, Um, And sure, 5G will make your internet lightning quick. That's how they're selling it to us. But then it's been completely bought and paid for. So it's just like pharma, right? It's a good idea. Painkillers are amazing. If you have acute pain, we're all so grateful. If we have surgery and we can take some Percocet, right? But then we overdid it. Always take a good thing and we overdo it. Like, for instance, civil rights for gay people. Yes, I was for that. I don't want to tell people who love each other. I don't want to legislate that. I don't want to tell people that they can't get married if they're of the same sex. And some of you will disagree with me on that, but you know, I I supported that. And now we took it too far. We're obliterating gender. And instead of being inclusive and tolerant, we're beating anybody up who disagrees and shutting down any conversation about whether it makes any sense about a man who is taking female hormones and says that he's a woman. I mean, I don't care if a man wants to become a woman, but it's not okay with me if they join the MMA and beat up a woman and crush her skull when she doesn't even know that this person is a biological man, because again, we just, we take it too far. So just in summary, pathways are the ways that they gamify our lives. Nudges are the ways that um, you build into softwares, reminders that you're about to get punished or rewarded. This is the kind of thing that's already in gaming systems. And guess who paid for it? DARPA and the military. That's who paid for Pokemon Go. Talk about a a, a test balloon. Pokemon Go was funded by the military and DARPA. So um, you will, if they get their way, have a virtualized second body as part of this gamification and commodification of ourselves and our children. And it's just this globalism thing, uh, taking a good thing and taking it too far. You know, you hear about on the surface and you weren't listening to these podcast episodes. You'd say, well, what's, what's bad about gamification? Sounds fun to me, right? It's a game. What could, what could be bad when you look at it of being applied to social programs about giving people incentives to do something we want them to do, like be productive at work or stop smoking, or making those things fun, right? That's what you're originally going to be sold on. They're going to give you really good examples like that. But what they have in mind is to virtualize us and give us this digital body or second persona or a twin that lives in the cloud 
And guess who owns the cloud? Yep, it's some billionaires, some some white, super rich guys. And your virtual twin will be gamified. And you'll be put on a pathway. And you'll be rewarded for doing things they want and penalized for things they don't want that aren't on your pathway that you weren't supposed to do. And you'll earn things for your virtual persona. And you want to avoid going to digital jail. Hey, there's a thing we've already been conditioned for, right? We all understand going to digital jail. We know what it feels like to be silenced. It feels terrible, doesn't it? I've been to a month of Facebook jail twice in the last few months. And it's gotten me to really get real about whether I even belong on Facebook. I mean, it's sad, right? I spent 11 months building my career there, building an audience there, talking to people there. But these words, digital pathways, um, are really about surveillance. And Alison McDowell shows a little video of how, how it could work. And it shows Kathy, who is the social worker assigned to a prisoner and who has a wife and a daughter. And I can't remember their names, but um, they tell the prisoner, we'll call him Joey, that he'll do better if his wife and daughter do better. And they tell them the same. And so they, they do it under the guise of helping the whole family. And they give them a Chromebook. Who doesn't want a fancy, expensive Chromebook when you're on public assistance and you can never buy a $600 device yourself? By the way, I have no idea what a Chromebook costs. I don't have a Chromebook. But let's ask ourselves what the Chromebook is doing. To use it, you'll, of course, need tokens. So this is one of the ways they're gamifying the world. You already know how powerful video games are because we have these huge cohort of kids, mostly boys, who have completely dropped out of life because the gaming world leverages human psychology to give you everything that the real world does when you're winning, right? Like, so it doesn't matter if you're like socially awkward, maybe you're even, maybe you're autistic, um, maybe have acne, but you know what the, the, gaming world does is it gives you a social life. It gives you a community. It gives you complex, interesting stories and rewards and higher and higher levels of rewards. It it has baked into it ambition and setting goals. These are things that people like, right? These are people things. These are things that people do in their real lives and gaming coders know it. And Joseph Gonzalez, who um, speaks quite a bit in this presentation that I'll leave you in show notes of each of the this three-part episode. Joseph Gonzalez is a game coder, I think for about 30 years, and he had to code a game for Silicon Valley, uh, some company in Silicon Valley, and he said that he was told to build in the odds of winning being 10,000 to one, and he said it was completely amazing how hard people would work and how these gamers would just go and go and go for it, even though they had a one in 10,000 chance of winning. And he was told, hey, this is totally illegal. You can do this. So, and I don't know if this was, I got the sense that it was um, like a gambling game for Las Vegas or whatever. So, you know, that's what they've learned about human psychology is they could get people to do a lot if they just gamify it because people like playing games and working for rewards. Even if they have no idea, the likelihood is that they'll actually earn the reward. So back to the caseworker, Kathy, and the uh, prisoner, Joey, and the wife and daughter. 
So Kathy may have started as a human caseworker, but eventually she becomes virtual. And most of the jobs in the world will become digital jobs and or replaced, human beings replaced, right? But you've seen how in the last year, most of the people who used to work in office buildings now work at home. But now they want to use artificial intelligence and surveillance. Okay, we're already highly surveilled, as I've mentioned, and they'll use sensors. Uh, McDowell says they'll put sensors even on trees. Um, that was in the book 1984 as well. And they'll use virtual reality, okay, like like a virtual reality headset or whatever, or the play tables in the pre-K classrooms that they've been testing. Um, they'll use virtual reality. And so Joey's wife and daughter, we'll call them Maria and Sarah. Maria, the wife, is supposed to stop smoking on her pathway. And Sarah, the daughter, is going to have to take her asthma medications to get her rewards. And, of course, there's penalties for not doing it because she's not getting her schoolwork done because she has too many days with out-of-control asthma. Now, plug your critical thinking skills in here. See how they're selling it to us? I mean, who would argue with it being a good thing that the state invests in a Chromebook for Maria and she quits smoking? You know, liberals are going to love that, right? Um, and conservatives, conservatives are going to love it because they sell it to them as what works, okay? Or, you know, pay for performance. They're going to sell it to them as that. And they're going to use a lot of words like evidence-based. So who would argue that it's not a good idea for Sarah to do what she's told to keep her asthma in control on her pathway? All right. So great. I don't, I don't disagree with you about all that, but the problem is that cases like Joey's and Maria's and Sarah's are set up. The idea is that they be packaged and bought and sold. And the higher these people are controlled, the more output whoever owns these packages can get from them in blocks, the better the outcomes are, the more profitable they are. Like I said, Hewlett Packard is deep in this. Um, and I'm sure they'll act like it's some kind of big humanitarian service, but you got to get clear on the fact that these Chromebooks are tools of surveillance. So another piece of vocabulary to be considering is that they're setting people up with social contracts on the blockchain for, for social services. I'm imagining one of those, and we've all signed them, right? A 20 page fine print contract that we sign with a click on our device. So while there's a good side that people will just hope for as they sign loads of contracts because they need food and they need housing. So they're basically choosing their own slavery without really feeling like they have a choice. Well, I mean, here's an example, by the way, I personally don't have a problem with eating entirely plant-based, right? I already don't eat meat, but this is going to really bother those of you who do. Um, the World Economic Forum released um, a video. Turns out the globalists don't want pig farms and cattle ranches and chicken farms. They want everybody to be a vegetarian. And they put this video out that actually stated that people in poverty from outages of the power grid or whatever will be given packages of plant protein foods as long as they get the vaccine. And they got huge backlash on this and they took the video down. So once again, um, pushing back, I'm not sure that that means that we won't be seeing that again, but we have to push back. We absolutely have to push back. 
Okay. So do you see how, yeah, there'll be, there'll be positive outcomes as people give up their rights to any bodily autonomy at all, such as agreeing to experimental injections. And, and they'll use examples like it's a good thing if people stop smoking, right? Why not give Maria some incentives to stop smoking? But what if that's really just an example that they're using to sell you on signing a digital contract? And what if they don't want Maria to stop smoking at all? What if smoking is totally tolerated or even encouraged because they'd love for Maria, who is marked as a taker rather than a giver in the new economy, maybe they'd just love for her to die 10 years earlier. Um, what if, what if they, what they really profit from is Maria just getting more output of widgets in her work for a lower cost? What if that's their real motive is to just get more productivity out of Maria for more years? So just ideas there or scenarios about how even though they've used words and named their organizations and they've learned the sophistry of talking like they're fantastic humanitarians so that they get most of the world praising them and putting them on the Ellen show and telling them, thank you so much for saving millions of babies in Africa like she did with Bill Gates. Anyway, it's just a joke. It's double speak. It's pure evil and lies. Will they put some front-facing good turn out there to confuse you and to keep millions of people confused? Of course. Of course they will. They're already great at that. But that right there is what creates the profit. The lack of critical thinking skills, right? If they want Maria to quit smoking, if it makes the package of people they've sold as human capital bonds to big investors, 2,000 Marias in a smoking cessation program more profitable, we have a real problem, though a really big problem when there's a profit motive to do something bad, right? I mean, that's the whole problem with our food supply chain right now. That's in the hands of mostly huge corporations who don't care in the slightest. If you get cancer after many years of eating their garbage GMO products that contain an average of 12 toxic chemicals in them, right? They just sit around a boardroom table and strategize about how to get you to eat more of it by putting MSG in it. And they strategize how to get more profit per unit out of it. Well, how do they do that? By putting in cheaper, crappier ingredients and or raising the price. I mean, John and I were just reading this week that um, to avoid inflation, some companies, I think they use Nutella as an example, sell for the same price, but they make a 16-ounce bottle 12 ounces or whatever. So, you know... In case you're starting to think that all these big companies are such wonderful humanitarians uh, because they use words like sustainable growth and sustainable development. Um, listen, if you're in Nabisco and you're sitting at a boardroom with 14 other executives trying to brainstorm how you can increase shareholder profit next quarter, are you having meetings about how much you care about people in poverty and how you wish they would stop smoking? Of course not. You're doing what you were hired to do. You are maximizing shareholder profit. And like I said, they're, they're really selling these programs in a bipartisan way, right? The propaganda for conservatives is that it's what works government. They love using words like evidence-based, which means nothing 
if they just gathered some evidence and uh, selectively presented it to you and it was really just their beta test so they could throw it on a PowerPoint and tell people how fabulous these programs are. And by the way, they even have auditors set up for their programs to say, hey, we even have third-party scrutiny of these programs. Except that when you dig into that, you find out that it's one of the billionaires, like um, the billionaire who started PayPal that's doing the auditing, his company. So it's all sort of self-perpetuating and they're all sort of rubber stamping each other and it looks good front facing, but you got to understand how brilliantly this is all set up. You have to go really deep like Alison McDowell has to even figure out that it's actually walking ourselves into an insane amount of inescapable misery and poverty if we agree to this. And the propaganda for liberals is, of course, that all the poor are covered in this program, right? But, you know, McDowell points out, if you securitize the debt, that means that someone is potentially betting that you're not going to make it, that you're not going to, for instance, um, you're setting up social programs for suicide prevention and the stated goal, if the stated goal is to reduce suicides, there could be a hedge fund who's betting on, we think there's going to be more suicides and they make tons of money if there's more suicides. And don't you think this is a conflict of interest to get profit motives into people's poverty and people's misery and people's lives in a way that the wealthiest people among us are betting on outcomes for huge populations of vulnerable people? Am I the only one who's thinking about the Hunger Games here? Let's wake up here. Trust me, your state legislator has no clue about any of this. Your governor probably isn't awake to any of this. My governor, DeSantis, is staking his life and for sure his political future on standing up to the globalism because he clearly sees it as evil. He sees that this is a primrose path we're walking down and he wants out of it. But most of you listening to this, you have cowardly go along to get along governors and legislators and bureaucracies. Cause here's the thing. There are millions of people right now making a six figure salary working for these exact companies that are building the softwares. Uh, Alison McDowell says there are at least a hundred tech companies in Utah building a lot of this stuff that is a means by which they tighten the noose around our neck one degree at a time. So impact investing, that should be a term that you're aware of, and it should be really, really disturbing to all of us. And I just hope that you'll be listening for these words and doing all you can to wake others up. Impact investing, because that word all by itself doesn't raise any red flags, right? Does it? Impact investing. I don't pretend that my analysis here or my Cliff's notes of Allison McDowell's research even does it justice. I mean, I've told you that I've listened to three talks of hers that were three hours each. And I think it will be a great listen for you. There's actually very little overlap in the three talks. You won't feel like you're just listening to the same thing over and over again. But what, what I'm good at is talking about complex subjects in ways that you can understand it no matter who you are. And especially understand how it's relevant to your life. And even though McDowell has an just incredible command of vocabulary of the propaganda and the organizations involved in this huge, complex new virtual reality and all the associated industries 
and companies, you know, my goal is that you can understand what she's talking about. She's super humble. And she says, I'm just a mom. Um, she's not some PhD researcher. She's a wife and a mom and says, you know, I'm blessed to have the time to commit to this uh, because my husband works. And so I can really spend the time on this, but I got to tell you, 99.99% of us are not spending hundreds or thousands of hours researching the plans of the global elite to enslave us or doing anything else to benefit the planet. Most of us are just thinking about ourselves and doing nothing like McDowell is to really speak up for our children and for the future of human beings on the planet. And so I just want to say how grateful I am for this work of hers. I had really had not seen anyone with a big audience take this kind of information on. Um, my colleague Sayer G is the third interview, the third talk she did. So he has, and I'm grateful for that. But I'm I'm doing this summary because I think it's so important. I think I'll have her on for an interview. So DM me on Telegram if you want to tell me what else you want to know from her. If there's just been a question that's just nagging at you for a deeper dive, if I don't cover it here in this flyby, um then for sure, DM me and say what what it is that you want to know from Allison McDowell. So the goal here of the globalists is privatized, tech-driven social welfare systems. Okay, privatized, tech-driven social welfare systems. So this is the the trust the public-private partnerships, as we've seen the World Economic Forum put it. Because they know that's their big Achilles heel is people aren't going to trust it. They don't want to see the big corporations merge with government. They know that people aren't going to just naturally trust that. But to me, what's so scary about privatizing social welfare is that if it's making somebody money, then, of course, they want more of it. They want more of it. I mean, they make more money just until we're dead, right? So basically, it's profiting from human misery, which I'm being honest, after 25 years now of researching the vaccine industry, that's how I see pharma, too. The most lucrative industry in history were not valuable to them when we're dead. But the more vaccines they can get into one live person while we're still functional and working and productive in some way, the more money we're worth. So if you think about it, we are most valuable to them when we are functional but miserable. All right? We are we are not the greatest asset to them when we're healthy and happy or when we're dead. Although they'd also love to thin the herd. They want to get rid of a lot of old people and a lot of poor people around the globe. And I'm sure they'd also love to get rid of a lot of big mouths like me, right? But they find you most valuable when you are functional but miserable. So. The goal is we each have our own digital fingerprint and you can't run. You can't hide from that. You can't go far. When they manage to get a lot of data recorded on us, this is why I've turned off Instagram on my phone after reading their new privacy policy, which the short version of it is you have none. I realized as I was learning about this, that I've been completely fingerprinted twice in the last six months. I got fingerprinted when I was getting my concealed carry permit. 
And again, when I was getting my temporary resident visa in Mexico. And if I had known then what I know now, I would probably walk out of the concealed carry class if I had that to do over again. I wouldn't give Mexico my fingerprints either. I would have come home rather than do that. So be on the lookout. That's one of the things that you can do is be on the lookout for ways that they are gathering data on you. Like I said, I believe the PCR test is one of them. And avoid those. That is something that you can do very well. So one of the big objectives they have is to create an army of people needed to create more virtual synthetic people for faster creation of this alternative world that we've been talking about. I mean, you think about it, every single program they create needs tons and tons of virtual characters. And so there's an unlimited need for that to to create virtual realities and characters like Kathy, the caseworker who puts the prisoner Joey's wife Maria and his daughter, Sarah, on a pathway, right? You might interact with Kathy for months and not realize that she's actually not even a real person. And already AI has gotten better and better. And there are probably companies that you've engaged with online that their customer support is so well set up inside Facebook Messenger or using a chatbot program that you actually think you're dealing with a person and you're not. And all of that will be crucial to building the new models for healthcare and for education and for social impact as everything gets managed and distributed in new ways. So they're setting us up to offer us a virtual or alternative life because we're going to be trapped inside our homes for the long term. And they want all assets encrypted into their blockchain so that they can dictate and control who gets what and who does what. By the way, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is a huge backer of this whole thing. And that made sense. That kind of helped put a puzzle piece in Utah together because I was like, why is the U.S. Chamber, the the Utah Chamber of Commerce putting on this um, small business summit? And I have friends who went and they said, I had predicted to one of them, I was like, I bet, I bet they just pitched the vaccine and they really want the small businesses to uh, force the vaccine. And he said in one entire day, he said, every single speaker pitched the vaccine. Um, Allison McDowell says that Obama's Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act carved education up into chunks that look an awful lot like the Hunger Games. And as I said before, there's teachers who really aren't loving their jobs anymore because they're being reskilled. Not not necessarily a word in the vocabulary yet, but they're being shifted into being more data managers or coders, and that's why they're they're saying how much they hate their job. Right? That's a real pain point in the new system because a lot of reskilling has to happen. Um, reskilling being one of the big propaganda words, and teachers are going to have to be more coders than teachers, right? And the crappy teachers were cheering for getting to go home and work in their jammies because it was new for them to not have to get up and get dressed and drive to school in the snow or whatever. They loved it at first, but that's because they're not really realizing that, you know, what the long-term reality of that is. And so, so yeah, the teachers in the union, and I'm not saying all teachers in a union are crappy teachers, but a lot of them are. 
the burned out 30 year teaching veterans who were just like, woohoo, I could stay home and collect a paycheck. Well, here we are. Turns out that's what they want permanently. And pretty soon everybody will get a digital digital voucher for education. Okay. There's already lots of that going on out there. And, and maybe have a sponsor of your education so that it's kind of like indentured servitude. There's some programs where sugar babies have to pay their future employer back over time um, because their employer paid for their micro training um, for the skill training that they got. So they got to, they got to pay them back because they needed a way to eat and house themselves or they can buy a blockchain, just garnish your wages for years for the education you signed up for. Cause you have to eat and you have to house yourself. And as we and our children become human capital, even more than we already are, there are to be human capital bonds. They're going to issue bonds on us, which are financial instruments as a means of generating profits on human beings, labor or output or poverty or prison sentences or social welfare experience. Their intent is to monetize any and all of that. So where investors currently invest in the stock markets or mortgages, now they'll be able to invest in, Allison McDowell says, toddlers. And they begin to digitally track the kids. She talks about children wearing onesies with a tracking device to collect data and AI. And apparently, even a lot of homeschoolers are falling prey to you know, some kind of method of controlling them or buying them off. They're giving them money for their kids schooling to use on, you know, with the, with the shekels come the shackles, right? The shackles are, you have to use the state dictated uh, testing, I think is how it works. Because if you pull your kids out of school and you're paid to keep them out of school, but you use this curriculum for free, then I'll guess you'll get dependent on that income and you'll pretty much do what the state says. So if I had little kids right now, I would pull them out of school for sure. Even, even if all I could spend, even if I were working full time and all I could spend is one hour a day educating them, I still think that it'd be better than putting them into the open air prisons where they get uh, brainwashed and possibly in many ways turned, turned against you. Right. I would keep them out of these programs that are fingerprinting and digitally fingerprinting and barcoding and brainwashing them. And I think what I got from listening to Joseph Gonzalez and Allison McDowell is that Ethereum may be their blockchain system and they need um, the dollar to keep going until Ethereum is ready. And it may be they said another two years to get Ethereum to be able to process a million transactions per second, which is like Visa or MasterCard is now they can, they can do about 1 million transactions per second. And that's not even close to fast enough for the global reset system. So, so they're keeping the dollar in play, even though these stimulus trillions of dollars would normally by now be causing hyperinflation and it is causing inflation, but weirdly, the Fed is refusing to raise interest rates. So we're really headed for a, a catastrophe. A couple other notes. 
from uh, my listening to nine hours of talks by Alison McDowell is that the military is already highly gamified. Entertainment and gaming is a huge component of how our military is already trained and exploited. As I read 1984 and A Handmaid's Tale, some of the elements that these books have in common and have everything to do with where we are right now is that you never make eye contact because it can get you in trouble. Another thing that these books have in common is that you start to lose your grip on the past or on reality. You can't necessarily remember your parent or your spouse or your child that you got lost or separated from, that perhaps the state separated you you from. Um, McDowell talks about, you know, if they start putting people in green zones, there's some discussion of putting people who won't get the vaccine in green zones and sort of sentence them to, um, you know, be in a specific area. I mean, look at, look at Israel right now, right? Beta test again, uh, where they're reopening the economy, but nobody's allowed to go to the theater and do all these different public things like they used to, unless they got the vaccines. So that was something that I saw over and over again in these books that these characters in these dystopian novels start to forget what life was when they had freedom. And, and like I said, what's crazy about after 1984 being published in the, in the forties, um, 15, 20 years later, the exact scenario played out in Mao Zedong's China, right? Some people, some people say he only killed 30 million people, which would still probably make him the most prolific serial killer in history. But what's crazy is people in China still have to bow to Mao. They still have to worship him. There are, there are statues of him all over China. But Mao in the cultural revolution turned family members against each other, just like in those novels, because you had to be loyal to the party way, way, way above loyalty to your family. So if you even had a thought that wasn't loyal in some way, you could be um, the book 1984 calls it vaporized or in a handmaid's tale, the black van pulls up as you're walking down the street and grabs you and throws you in the back of the black van with white angel wings on it. And so to me, though, the most chilling similarity in all these books, and I believe that it's already starting to happen here, is that parents become afraid of their children. And frankly, I'm a little afraid of my children, if I'm being honest. I mean, I'm not worried that they'll turn me into the thought police. We're not there yet. And anyway, I've said so much publicly that it won't take my kids turning me in to get me in trouble. There's nobody who can't find out in 1.4 seconds searching my name on the internet, how I feel about all of what's going on. Um, Because I've said it, I'm not going to be putting my head down and being a good little communist. This podcast alone means that that my kids aren't going to need to turn me into the thought police. I've outed myself just fine, but my children are older and they were already young adults when this began. And in the book, 1984, they started training their children at a really young age to be spies um, and they were rewarded for watching other people's behavior and following anybody who acted and or spoke in a strange manner. And they were considered excellent citizens for engaging in this kind of behavior. And so if you think this is the stuff of science fiction novels, the problem is, is that it actually has happened. 
um, not just with millions of people in Mao's cultural revolution and billions of the Chinese in the last 60 years, but also in a number of different communist countries. But my children don't, don't really question what's going on. Um, one of them does a little bit. She reached out to me a few months ago and said, mom, I'm ready to listen. Um, and, you know, I sent her a couple of pieces of content, never heard from her again, but I'll be seeing her this week in uh, Utah. But about a month ago, and this is a rather painful little personal um, thing I'm going to share with you, but all three of my youngest children within a week of each other sent me messages saying something like one of them said, are you still losing your mind? And obviously that's really, really mean, right? And I don't think uh, not all of my children would say something that mean. But another one said, do you need professional help? And that's less mean, but it still feels awful as a mom who a year ago was close to all three of those kids. Um, But I share that with you because I'm just being really honest about what's happening in the big divide between generations right now. I'm sharing it with you so you know what's possible. And I'm just hoping that someone who hears this, someone who can preempt this kind of thing, happening to them by starting the conversation with your own children, the younger that your children are, the better. And just realize it's not one conversation you have, it's many, but starting the conversation is important. And maybe start it with something really relevant to them. Like, like how my friend Carmen told me today that her 16 year old son's school is set up exactly like a prison. When you walk in with the big barriers and I don't even know what all about it reminded her of her prison, but you know, a conversation with her son where, you know, you have to be more careful the older your child is because her son just wants to fit in with all the other kids. He sat out of school for, for a few months and he got very, very depressed and he missed his friends. He wanted to play his sport, but you could start a conversation like, so have you ever been inside a prison? Gosh, that's what your school felt like to me today. What does it feel like to you when you walk in? Do you notice, do you notice how much your school has changed? How do you feel about it? That'd be one way to start a conversation, for instance, because I'm hearing stuff like what I just shared with you from a lot of parents of millennials right now. It's not just me. Some of you are going to hear that and feel a little better when you hear my story about how all three of my youngest children said something along the lines of you need some professional help or, you know, because you have this view of the world that is so negative, but you know, someone reached out to me the other day to tell me about their children and the big gap between them and their children. And and she referred to her children as blue pill, which I like when, when, when you hear that I'm having this experience too, I hope that helps some of you feel less alone. But of course that blue pill is referring to the film, the matrix if you haven't seen it, there's the main character is Neo in the matrix. It's Keanu Reeves. And he has to choose between the red pill and the blue pill. And he knows that if he chooses the red pill, he can never come back from it. He's going to unplug from the matrix and he's going to take his chances with freedom and with, with really knowing what's going on. It's like the scales will fall from his eyes. And I've chosen the red pill in the last year. And I wouldn't have it otherwise, even though if you've taken the red pill, you might feel a little jealous of the blue pill people sometimes because they're totally clueless about what's going on and they're just accepting things and they appear happier than us. Would you agree? 
You know, like I think of that, that phrase, ignorance is bliss, but you have chosen the red pill or you probably wouldn't even be on this show. Or maybe someone gave you this episode and it's your first time here. And if so, welcome to the red pill. You really don't want to be on my show if you choose ignorance about the circumstances you're in or if you want to stay plugged into the matrix. If you unplug from the matrix, you have the truth. You get to be your authentic self. You get to be independent of groupthink. You might not control a whole lot about the world, and that's the problem with it, right? You're going to have to face some really cold, hard, ugly facts about this very corrupt world that you live in and where some powerful people want to take your future. But as the main character in 1984 says, you still control the few inches inside your skull. So the blue pill people do not control their own minds. They've been told what to believe and what to think, and all of it is wrong, right? Little kernels of truth mixed in with a lot of fiction. And so if the blue pill is what you want to stay asleep, to stay plugged into the matrix, if you're not ready for the truth, I get it. But if you're new here to this show, Probably whoever gave you this podcast episode to listen to wants to be available to you, wants to be that person who holds your ponytail while you puke, (laughs) which is how people who take the red pill feel, right? When they start to discover, I'm not talking about theorizing about conspiracy theories. I'm talking about discover the actual truth that there is proof of in every single case that we're talking about here today, that a lot of what we were taught Growing up and in the media or what's happened in the last year was lies. Just like a lot of what we're being told every single day by CNN and MSNBC and New York Times. There might be a kernel of truth. And that's what keeps us all plugged into the media. I mean, there definitely was a lot of snow and ice in Texas last week, right? But why it happened and who did it? And what the real agenda was and why lots of people now have a $10,000 power bill, that is lies and spin and conditioning and propaganda to keep you in the dark, figuratively and literally in the case of the people of Texas kept in the dark. And if none of this makes any sense, for sure, go back and watch The Matrix with Lawrence Fishburne as Morpheus and Keanu Reeves as Neo. Super, super important because literally everybody who is awake and conscious these days, not only do we need each other, but we've also been using these metaphors from the matrix and also put on your watch list to go see the big short. I believe that it is on Netflix. I'm going to watch it myself because uh, uh, Allison brings this up over and over again. And some of my friends have told me as well to go watch the big short. So we're already seeing the early to moderate stages of what's in the science fiction novels and movies and the agenda of the globalists. And I've had a lot of parents my age say that they feel like they can't speak freely around their adult children or they're being canceled if they do. Well, that is just stage one where you can't speak freely. So those of you with younger children, with minors, I'm begging you, please have conversations with your children about these topics. So, so there's less likelihood that the agenda really can get to them. Even if all they do is retain control of their minds, it's worth doing, right? One conversation isn't good enough. I've talked on this show before about how I thought I did a fantastic job teaching my kids about sex. My mom did a good job with me, but she just had one talk, right? And I had one big talk with each child, one-on-one, made it really special, took the child out to dinner, used anatomically correct words to discuss the 
the whole sex act. And, and, uh, my, my older daughter said to me, you know, you didn't do a very good job of teaching about sex. And I'm like, what? She said, you just had one conversation. Like there's a lot to know. You should have talked to me about it many times. And she actually has a really good point. So the super obedient children, okay. The ones who love rules, those are the most at risk here. Okay. And, and it's a hard conversation to start. You know, I'm just spitballing here with you because it's a hard conversation to start because it's your kids, right? And you don't want to drag them into the dystopia and you don't want to depress them. It's, it's stressful for a young mind. I mean, it's been stressful for you. Right. And I feel that. And I don't like to, um, I don't like to take you to ugly places, not without hope at the end of it. But remember that, you know, you got to have more than one conversation. And I think another thing you could do just while we're thinking of ideas is you could have them read 1984 or a handmaid's tale. I mean, it was required reading when I was in college, I think. Um, and I've got a brave new world. It's next. And, and I would say have a family, um, reading club. That would be super valuable because then you're talking about a story. It's fiction, right? A little less stressful, but then as it feels right. And as they show curiosity, talk about the parallels to our lives right now. Um, I used to give my kids rewards to read books. I wanted them to read as a kid. And now it sounds like I, I gamified parenting. So there's nothing wrong with it. You know, there's nothing wrong with it, but the whole fact that blockchain and 5G exist kind of, to me, point to the really obvious possibility um, that it could be used for for um, for evil. So if I could go back in time, that's what I would do. I would ask my kids to read these novels and then have a conversation with them about it. Wish they'd taught them about all this because... Guess what? There are studies that a very short period of conditioning by schools like college will undo a lot of parenting. And I feel like I paid for my children's college degrees. The youngest two are, well, the youngest three, if you include Jacob, uh, are college juniors. And I feel like it undid a lot of the values that I taught them. So I want to also just make a comment that might feel a little bit random here, but about totalitarian regimes and sex. My husband randomly said to me a couple of days ago that we would be the last generation who had a normal sexual experience. And what he means is that if they get their way, he, he's been deep in Allison McDowell's content as well, but, um, and I keep telling him he hasn't read Handmaid's Tale in 1984, but I keep telling him about it. But he said, you know, it's possible that all the generations that follow us will never know sex as a connected and loving and, you know, happening naturally in a committed relationship for both pleasure and connection, not just for procreation, monogamous sex, just the whole package when it comes to how you view human sexuality. If these technocrats get their way, I would predict that the collectivist attitude towards sex is going to change radically. And that's another thing that both 1984 and A Handmaid's Tale had in common is that sex was ex- was exclusively for procreation and the party pretty much ruined sex, right? And that's not that there wasn't the seedy side of life, you know, um, when totalitarian governments overregulate sex or shame people about it uh, and, you know, religious organizations, same thing, or drive it underground, 
Um, I'm sure you're aware that prostitution and pornography industries just explode in those circumstances, right? Um, in 1984, the poor are called the, the huge, 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 um, communities of the poor. They call them proles. And it took me a couple chapters to figure out that proles is short for proletariat. And that's referencing the Marxist underclass or working class or the poor who are always in Karl Marx's uh, plans, always pitted against the bourgeoisie who are the middle class or the business owners. And the proles were given porn in 1984 that the party made for them. And the party, which is basically the communist regime, would pretend that porn was illegal. And that literally all that was for is so that they would make the people really want the porn and get the proles hooked on porn. Remember, this is in the 40s. So if you think porn is new, it's not new. It's just ubiquitous around the world. And it's just worse and kinkier and weirder and more niche because of the privacy of the internet and the black market internet. I forget what it's called. There's a part of the internet. You're probably thinking of it right now that only some, some people have gone to the trouble to figure out how to go there. But, but yeah, they wanted everyone to look at porn because it keeps the poor occupied. It keeps them doing nothing particularly productive. It keeps them from rising up against their captors. Their free time is taken up by absolutely useless behaviors and addictions. And you're probably aware that pornography can actually harm your sexuality too, especially if you're a man. Because if you're watching porn every day, um, or if you are reaching sexual climax to porn, and especially now that it's been on the internet for 20 years and you can look at weirder and weirder and weirder porn, you need higher and higher levels of dopamine, depending on if you've seen a, a huge quantity of porn and the kind of porn that you become addicted to does not translate to a real live loving relationship with a spouse. There are lots and lots and lots of people in our world who have become sexually dysfunctional. I'm talking about erectile dysfunction. In fact, it has a word P I E D porn induced erectile dysfunction. It's a real thing. But anyway, in 1984, they needed everybody's productivity and, you know, it's hard. It's hard to get people's productivity high enough in communism because you don't have the incentives that you do in the free market system where if you work really hard, you make more money. So when all those at the top of the totalitarian system are making money on the productivity of the party, they care a lot about productivity with carrots and sticks. Okay. So it's not every, it's not the middle class. It's not anybody who wants to buy into the stock market who's going to be making money on the monetization of our poverty in the great reset. It's not. Okay. But the party in 1984 is basically referring to the middle class, or at least the, the industries or the jobs that become the police state. And, you know, just like Sarah, the United flight attendant who wrote me and said, I hate my job so much, but I have to provide for my children. So I do it, but they literally threaten us every day to beat people up about masks and to constantly threaten people about masks and make sure every single person on the plane, even between bites of food and between sips of water, the flight attendants have to pounce on people 
to get them to be mass compliant. So, so yeah, in 1984, um, the party is basically the middle class, except they're pretty dang poor for a middle class. They're just like that thin layer in between the people at the top, uh, making all the money who have all the power and the masses of the poor, the people who are just barely not starving. So I think, I think we're going to see this as the teachers, the programmers, the flight attendants, the healthcare workers. They're going to be the enforcers of the police state. I hate to tell you that if you work in one of those industries, but it's probably also going to hit you like a lightning bolt because you're like, oh, that's why I hate my job. Make sure you uh, share this with your friends who are in the healthcare system or uh, working for the airlines or a teacher. And they've told you, geez, my job has become something I didn't sign up for. So in conclusion, people who know this stuff have a responsibility. That's really what I want to impress on you is that if you're awake, you still control the several inches between one side of your skull and the other side of the skull. And that is valuable real estate. We may not be able to fight this. We do have to choose our battles at this point. I get that. I've chosen a lot more battles than most people do. I never wear a mask. I just plan on having conversations with anybody who wants to, you know, confront me except in airports. Okay. So I'm, I'm with you. I, there are, there are battles I will not choose after being kicked off of Delta after flying 1.2 million miles with them and got kicked out into a state out into the rain the night before Thanksgiving. That's, that's a line of dry. I put my head down and act like a good little communist in airports because I really want to get home because I really want to see my family. And as I'm recording this episode, I have to get on a plane tomorrow. And, you know, I'd like to not be banned for life on all the airlines. And so I do what I'm told. So flying tomorrow from Florida to Utah, um, we're rather compliant on the airlines, my husband and me. Like we just stay together and try to keep each other sane because we don't do that anywhere else. I'm not superhuman, right? But we feel that we must retain the use of the space inside our skull. They cannot take that from us. And we do look for every way that that we can to resist. So I wanted to share with you a quote that Alison McDowell shares, which she says one of her great mentors is John Trudell. And he said, we have a responsibility to use the intelligence given to us by the creator to face the violence of the machine of technologic or he spells it with hyphens in between it, the machine of tech-no-logic, as generations have done before. Remember, there have been people who have been fighting this for generations, and now there are lots more of us in the fight. And I think it was someone in Allison McDowell's Utah audience who said that when you have the embers of the fire, um, and we could we could be looked at right now as a culture and a society who is now just down to burning embers. The fire's gone out. How do you put the fire out? You kick the embers. You spread them. If you want to rekindle the fire, what do you do? You stack the embers up. So I love that metaphor. And with that, you and I are the embers of the fire that's in jeopardy of going out. So what's your responsibility here? What was the purpose of you being here at this time, at this place? I think our responsibility here, you and I, now that we're awake as a conscious being in a world where the light's gone out for so many people, 
not just physically the people of Texas, for instance, who lost power and heat recently, but figuratively. You've seen so many people you love become mind-controlled by a, a fear narrative about a virus. So ask yourself, who will you share information with today? Will you be courageous? Who will you wake up today? Maybe somebody who doesn't think exactly what you do, but who would benefit by learning more about what's really going on. So with that thought to think on, thank you so much for joining me. I'll see you next time.